Welcome to episode 41 of the Town Oddly Podcast, creating your first typeface. I'm your host, Jared Brown, and I'm joined by Brandon Corbin. Good day. <laughs> Those two things totally didn't line up at all. <laughs> <laughs> They're not supposed to. No. We were both, we decided beforehand we would just do something a little more overboard than usual. And I like how it was like the polar opposite right there. <laughs> Deep voice and then high pitched, good day. <laughs> oh, hello. Right. hello, my talentopoly listeners. <laughs> Our guest on this episode is Abelardo Gonzalez. Welcome hello. to the show, Abelardo. Thank you. All right. Let's talk about the featured job for a moment. That's what makes all this possible is the I, talentopoly I, job board. I am, this is the part that I'm the most excited for. Oh yeah, I am. I literally like am 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 uh, sweating with anticipation to find out <laughs> who uh, is the winner of of this week's or this biweekly um, job. Well, Exact Target Brandon would be the winner this uh, episode. Go Exact Target. Their job is front end developer using the latest JS libraries. They do all kinds of cool JavaScript ninjury there. And that includes mustache, backbone, all the cool, what all the cool kids are doing with JavaScript right now. So if you like JavaScript and front-end development, check out that job post on the Townopoly job board. You can find that and many more jobs at townopoly.com slash jobs. Well, uh, before, he gets, before he just rambles off there, yeah, uh, it's also you know good to note that that's a super casual place, but it's also a gigantic company in Indianapolis that's been around and is going to be around for a long time. They let you, you can wear flip-flops. Mm-hmm. They, they they have no strict hours. It's 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 actually a really killer place to get a job. And they all a lot of them hang out even afterwards. Yeah, uh, yeah. After work, it's cool. Well, it's because like like almost seventy five percent of all the cool technology people work there. That's true in Indianapolis. That's yeah. yes in Indianapolis. <laughs> and they it's the one of their buildings they've got that's two. that's a stat you can look up on Wikipedia by the way. Really, that's awesome. <laughs> Did you just add that? I did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but they have a uh, they have a great restaurant built into that's in the first floor of the one of the buildings that they work at. So they hang out and have some beers there. And IndieJS, the JavaScript meetup that Talonopoly is currently sponsoring, also is uh, hand, is done there once a month. So cool stuff. All right, yeah. beverages. Brandon, what are you drinking? I am drinking wine. There's a shocker. There's a shocker, and and I have a cider here. So I've I've now gone. Uh, this is my second week that I've gone without any kind of wheat. Right, no wheat because I think I have issues with it. So I'm I'm taking it out of my system. So I've now been drinking ciders even more. But because um, I, I kind of laid off the wine, but I'm drinking. I think I'm drinking the same damn wine that we did last time we talked. And Which I don't one? know. I could. I could. I. I don't know the name. I don't have the bottle in front of me. <laughs> yep, and I can't explain it. Last time, so that's, it is. It's. It's one of those stupid names like Chateau de Thomas Le Mille. Um <laughs> and it's. You know, it's a Sauvignon Blanc, um, and it's extremely fermented because it's. I, I've had it here for a while, <laughs> um, so no, it's not very good, but it it's doing keep, the job. It doesn't keep fermenting though. It, well, I say that it gets more and more bubbly. So when I was a kid, let me tell you a little story real quick. When I was a child, I left a Snapple bottle in my closet. And I apparently forgot about this, had opened it, resealed it, and left it in there for about two years. I open it up, and it is wine. It's alcohol. And you could drink it, and you could get a buzz from it. Believe that? Craziness. You, wait, you so actually drank that? Like how long? What was, did you hesitate at all? You see this oh, thing, and you're like, "Oh, I'm absolutely." It. I'm like, "Oh," but then I smell it, and I'm like, "It's actually not that bad." I don't. <laughs> took, I only took a couple swigs, but it definitely was uh, uh, fermented. Uh, but anyway, the wine now, like I've said before, I know how old my wine is by how the cap blows off or the the cork blows out when I pull it out because it just starts building up a lot of air. So mm-hmm. no, people, throw your wine out after about three or four days. Three or four days. <laughs> that's that's usually like when it's safe for me. But I, I'll do it for like I'll do it for like two weeks, honestly. Excellent. It's gross after a couple of days. I know. I but again, I am a very lowbrow caveman, right? So I'm I'm not like my I don't have a sensitive palate. Um, but you I, drink wine. You know, uh, the common thing now is beer. Right now, beers. You know, like beer. Beer is micro stupid. Brews. I'm sorry. Everybody beer, wants a micro brew. You know what? A, a a it has to be above ten percent, 
and and not be just full of a bunch of wasted calories and a bunch of garbage like that. That's it. Yeah. And and you know whatever. Well, I'll let Avalerda go next. What are you drinking? Um, I am drinking tequila with limeade. Nice. Wow. <laughs> that is awesome. Okay, everybody we've talked to for the last three weeks has been having milk. <laughs> or water. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Well, I, 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 I normally just drink water, so this is a, oh, so an exception. T- I got to ask, what type of tequila? <laughs> oh, I don't know. I asked my mother-in-law, hey, um, I need some tequila. Excellent. <laughs> Yeah. And I got some. That was it. <laughs> I discovered like five years ago that my wife loves tequila. <laughs> yes. It was a great discovery. <laughs> it all happened in college. It did. <laughs> it's like, you know, there were very few things that she was wanting to drink at parties. And, you know, they never have tequila at like, you know, some crappy party. So then we're hanging out and like, oh, let's make some margaritas. Four margaritas later, oh, you like these things. All right. (laughs) So we always have tequila in our house. Nice. All right. I actually picked up a uh, a, a batch, a six-pack of Goose Island Harvest Ale that I figured would be appropriate for the time of year. It's kind of fun that all these Harvest Ales and Oktoberfest stuff is coming out now. Uh, My palate, like yours, Brandon, is not very discerning. So to me, it's really just beer at the end of the day, but... I get excited to uh, <laughs> ring in the fall season with some harvest beer. So anyway, with that uh, said, let's get into our topic and start off by having you talk a little bit, uh, Avalardo, about what it is that that got you started in the world of typefaces. Give us a little bit about your background in computers, if you would. Gotcha. Um, well... I'm programmer slash designer, and I guess about, I think it was a year and a half ago now, I, I was um, looking through the internet, and there were all these um, articles about uh, dyslexic typefaces and such, and I shared one of them on Talentopoly, and I kind of flippantly said, hey, um, I should make an open source version of that, and you said, well, you totally should. <laughs> <laughs> And that's actually what got me started on it. Nice. So, but let's back up a little bit more. Yeah. So you said you do programming and design. How long have you been doing that for? Um, right around when the iPhone came out, I actually started with that. And I did a Bible web app Excellent. that was pretty well received. Can you share how many downloads you got from it? Oh, Wow. This was like the first big thing I did, and it was in the millions, and I was like really freaked out about it because I was still in college at the time. Millions of downloads. Back then, that's really saying something. It it wasn't um, downloads. It was back before when you could only do web apps on the iPhone. Oh, okay. So it was like millions of hits. It would be like several hundred thousand per day. That's fantastic. Did you... I, I don't know if this is even a good question to ask, but did you monetize that in any way? Um, I put advertising for three days, got a hundred dollars from Google web app or Google's advertising thing. Mm-hmm. And then I removed the advertisements. You felt kind of icky for putting ads on it. <laughs> yeah, I did. That's silly. That is silly. You should okay, totally have monetized that. Well, I, Back then, I was thinking, I could do this. This is fun. I didn't have an iPhone at the time. So I did the ads, and it didn't actually fit in with the design at all. Uh, Yeah, They they, they never do. (laughs) Well, yeah, it looked absolutely horrible, and it looked like just straight-up commercialization, which was kind of like the wrong mood and stuff. So, and, you know, you feel icky. So, (laughs) What about an affiliate link? Like an affiliate link to buy you know, related stuff or buy a, a physical Bible and you could have made some sales off of that. I could have, but I didn't think of that back then. <laughs> <laughs> this is I, back in 2007, I think. I right. was, I think, a junior in college. Wow. So, yeah, um, what I did do was I mentioned, hey, I don't have an iPhone, so I can't even test and see how this looks. I'm just guessing, shooting in the dark here. So why don't you just download to my Get Me an iPhone Fund and I met my goal within a 
like two, three weeks. And after that, it was just pretty much I was okay with it. <laughs> Is it still up today? Um, no, I when I moved out, I had this bit of an accident and I never backed it up. Oh, no. Yeah, so. I know what website I'm launching tonight. (laughs) 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 If you ever read Bob Parsons' blog, the guy from GoDaddy, he says to start with something that, you know, everybody's going to buy. And what he started was a Bible application for Windows. Mm. And that's where he got his start. And he sold his. Is that Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. That's really cool. So on the design side of things, what, uh, what have you done in design? Um, after that, I just kind of like floundered doing some freelancing stuff here and there kind of thing. Um, and I did some websites for people try, um, I tried to help, like there were just these people nearby that really wanted to start a local newspaper and I tried to help them start that up and that didn't work out so well. Um, but yeah, just pretty much doing my own thing and doing freelancing on the side while trying to do side work. And what was it? I think I just finally got a website at one point and started like really pushing iOS stuff. So I did a silver calculator for the iPhone Mm. and that's for a brokerage down in Florida, um, Robert and Roberts. And I, um, did a couple other things for some other people. My mind is still stuck on this millions of hits for the Bible (laughs) site. How what did you do? Like, what did you do to get the word out about that? Like the night you make it and it's now live on the web. Did you have to do anything to get the masses to come to that? I didn't do much, honestly. Um, the iPhone had just been released. Um, the guy that I forgot his name. I think it's Joe Hewitt, the one that did the first Facebook. Yep. iPhone. He released the IUI JavaScript library, and. So I was just playing around with it and I just picked that up and was trying to, trying to learn stuff. And I was like, well, what could I put in here? And it was, the Bible was just a natural fit because it's a huge amount of content and you could play with the different levels, the chapters, the books, etc. So it just fit well together. But how did people find it initially? Because I'm assuming people were searching for everything iPhone related. Oh, okay. So just Google searches. Yeah. And Excellent. it just once, but outside of that, there was like no advertising, nothing. It was just boom. Wow. <laughs> Crazy. All right. So font face is right. That, that's the right term, right? Is that what you call your font? Like that, that's what you say it is, is a font face or a typeface? It's a typeface. Yeah. Sorry. Um, so typefaces, you're, you're getting started with typefaces. <sighs> Where, where do you start? Uh, Had you ever done anything like this before? Never before. So how did you get started? Um, I did a Google search for, I, I forgot what the terms were, but I just like started searching for different font applications. And um, when I actually started this, I was at like, um, work-wise, I was at a bit of a low point. So I didn't have any money, no equipment, nothing. And... Um, Megan had just saved up some money to get me a laptop, my wife. And so I'm just looking for demo apps or whatever. So I started out with Font Creator and then switched over to um, the Font Lab demo. And it was pretty self-explanatory. I started out with, like, I think I took Comic Sans to play around with first. And I played around with it really heavily until I kind of got the hang of things. What do you mean played around with it? What were you doing to it? Uh, changing shapes, manipulating it, kind of treating it like a lump of Play-Doh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I don't normally learn things without actually like going into it and manipulating it, hands-on type stuff. So that's pretty much what I did to get started. Nice. So did you graduate to other apps or are those the ones you ended up using for your uh, dyslexic font? Well, what I did was I had the Font Lab demo, and then I knew someone that had a copy of Font Lab. So I would either um, see over to his computer and use that, or I would send him the files for him to compile and put into Font. Okay, cool. 
Brent, you've done some fun stuff in the past, right, Brandon? Yeah, but it was literally, you know, uh, I can tell you exactly when it was. Um, you remember the movie Spawn? Yes. <laughs> okay. The the typography that happened uh, at the as the credits rolled of Spawn just blew me away, and so I spent I spent a few months trying to come up with a brain damaged font was the name of it, um, and I can't remember what tool I used. I think it might have been an an Aldis or Adobe. I, I type creator maybe i don't know i again my my short-term memory and long-term memory are pretty much shot um uh so yeah that's that's been my experience with it but it was more just to kind of create a real grungy font before there were you know an uh, uh, unlimited uh grunge fonts <laughs> what is it about fonts that that capture our attention why do we want to make more fonts What is it that got your attention with the dyslexic font? Was it more of a functional thing than an aesthetic? Oh, for me, it was a functional thing because when I first saw it, I like when I first saw the other ones and such, it was like, oh, hey, this is more readable. I like this a lot. I I liked it immensely. And, but it was like hundreds of dollars to purchase kind of thing. So it was obviously out of my reach. But, it was like that, which is why I kind of flippantly suggested, hey, maybe I should make an open source version. And it was, I guess, probably more expensive time-wise and everything to do so. But I think it was more worth it in the end. So so um, do you know what percentage the population is of – or that the population is dyslexic? Um, I can't remember. The – I could probably let me see yeah i guess we could google it real yeah, quick google it. um and uh, and hbo right now has uh has a great show the journey to dyslexia i think is what the name of it is um and it's a great documentary about dyslexia and and how it really impacts how it's used in education and how or how it's you know just ignored in education and kids are just labeled as being bad students or stupid um yeah. uh, but it's a it's a fascinating thing there's a lot of great ideas of you know how we could handle the education system talking about the spectrum of learning and it's it's brilliant so if you guys have hbo you can check it out what about having textbooks reprinted with uh, open dyslexic font <laughs> the, the, the mere fact that we have uh, textbooks is uh is is a fundamental problem if you ask me yeah you know, uh, the, the, you know, printing the moment that we print anything in a scientific book, you you know damn well in two weeks, a week, or uh, you know whatever it's going to be uh, changed. And so, uh, you know, having textbooks is silly, paper bound textbooks anyway. Did you guys see the um, thirteen dollar ebook reader that a German company is trying to release? No. It holds like I think it holds just five bucks, and it connects only with Bluetooth. And it just uses, I think, AA batteries. But yeah, something along those lines would be awesome for schools. I'm thinking. Yeah, thirteen bucks. See, and then right there, boom! Install the uh, open dyslexic font, and now for those students here, boom. Well, let's. We're we're talking a lot about dyslexia and the open dyslexic font. Could you just walk us through a little bit of what makes this font work well for dyslexics. Kind of describe to people, if you can, what makes it work well. Okay, so um, more specifically, what it does is um, it helps with some of the symptoms of dyslexia, Um, some of the things like rotating fonts and such, because in a normal um, serif and well serif typefaces, the extra decorations tend to cause more clutter, uh, I guess, more chaos on a page. Um, But sans serif um, typefaces, things like if you just look on your computer screen right now and you look at something like a P and a D and a B um, and a Q, all of those almost look like the exact same letter, but they're just rotated in the correct positions. If you have an issue where you're rotating letters, um, you can't actually, there's no real way to know what that letter is because it looks, depending on the direction, it looks, it's a different letter. Um, so what this does is it has bottom heavy letters, which kind of gives you an indication of where the bottom is supposed to be. For some people, it keeps it from moving. For others, they just know where the bottom is supposed to be. Um, and unique shapes for each letter. 
So that way it makes it harder to confuse or flip them around. Excellent. So, sorry, did you have something to say? Brandon? Yeah, yeah. Well, I was just so for the for the people at home, well, looking, you know, a lot of it is it's it seems like it's heavier at the base. Is that is that just looking at the font now that it it doesn't look like it's this crazy font if you can't visualize what we're trying to explain, but it's more of just the letters seem to get a little bit fatter at the bottom and and I noticed that like the D's and the P's that they are specifically warped or or weighted differently, um, so it's it's not now it's interesting and and I'm curious and that's why I asked the percentages of dyslexia is this is actually a little bit harder for me to read yeah for some right is. so I, I would be curious to see if because I completely get how this is is a great solution for dyslexia and what is that option of how how is the best way of handling it from an accessibility standpoint is it a button that I can have on my site that's like, oh, you know, dyslexic, click, boom, and and now I, I load your font automatically. Um, you know, I'm trying to think of how can I best utilize this. You know, it'd be great if there's a if there is a browser setting like, oh, hey, yeah. it's English and they're yeah. dyslexic. <laughs> you know, yeah, um, that, that would be perfect. That's I'm surprised that something like that hasn't already been thrown around. An idea to implement that in like the pro, in the preferences for your browser. Mm-hmm. They really should. I mean, there should be all sorts of accessibility settings. Now, obviously, there are at the brow or at the OS level, um, but yeah, at the browser level, it'd be great if they could, you know, pick those up. So, but at the OS level, there's not been anything from dyslexia. You know, there's there's colorblind, there's your contrast, there's things like that, right? But no one's done it from well, an OS level. As far as um, contrast goes, lower contrast does help some people. Mm-hmm. So that okay. works pretty well also. Um, having too high of a contrast sometimes causes, I guess, some kind of um, glare where it makes it harder to follow the words on a page. Hmm. So do you have this set as your, um, as your OS font? Um, Mac OS is kind of weird in that it was when it's create all the controls on the forms and such are created in such a way where they know the font they're using and the field has X width for this font. So I did at one point have it as my OS font and it looked really good, except lots of words were getting cut off because okay. it's yeah. not compatible with, I, I forgot what typeface it is. That's the default, but is it Lucidia. Yeah. It's not the same width. Yeah. So if I made something that was the same width, it would work pretty well, I think. So, the stats, by the way, on dyslexia, looks like 5 to 10% of the population is dyslexic, with 4% of that uh, part of the population, or 4% of the population being severely dyslexic. Is that so, for um, American stats? Well, I'm, the, it says, actually, it says 10 to 15% of the, the, in Google, you've got a bunch of results here that are kind of, you got to average this, I guess, but... Gotcha. It says 10 to 15% of the U.S. population has dyslexia, yet only 5 out of every 100 dyslexics are recognized and receive assistance. Then down here it says that in uh, the British population, 10% are dyslexic, 4% are severely so, and the Wikipedia page pegs it at between 5 and 10%. So somewhere in there, in yeah. that range. I would probably think 5 to 10% is the average of all that. I just had 10% memorized, but that that was Britain, and I didn't know what America was. <laughs> yeah. Why would it differ, though? That's what I don't understand. seems like it would, should be the same everywhere. GMO. Ooh! <laughs> what? <laughs> what is Gen- Genetically modified. Genetically modified. It's, Masan- it's Masanto, or however you say their name. It's their... Um, it, it, oh, okay. It's there, all, uh, all of it. That's causing dyslexia. Dyslexia, gotcha. No, it has. What what are the stats? Has it gone up? Are we seeing trends like obesity? We can obviously track. Look, you know, you have a you have you know ten thousand McDonald's. A bunch of people get fat. Um, Are they correlating any kind of uptick in dyslexia with any environmental things? I went as far as the Google results page, (laughs) so I really don't know. But it would be interesting to see that. I could sort of answer that. Part of the reason it depends on region, it depends on language, um, and a lot of 
some things with dyslexia have to do with um, letter shapes. Some of it have to has to do with phonetics and such. Mm. So if you go to a place like Korea, there wouldn't be as there might be people that would have that problem, but you wouldn't notice because of their the way they have their glyphs set up mm-hmm. and the way their language is set up. And, but if you go to some place in the Western world where we're using the Roman alphabet, you notice it a lot more. Yeah, one of the ideas, sorry, Jared, one, one of the ideas that I like is that people are, you know, a lot of uh, people saying that, oh, you're dyslexic, so you can't do well in school and all of this, that that really dyslexia could be the next step in evolution because so many people who are dyslexic are so visual and so creative and that they, they have these abilities to look at things completely different than people who are not dyslexic. Um, and, and that was kind of the angle of that whole uh, HBO documentary is that, you know, the people who really really figure out, okay, fine, you know, I have a hard time looking at, you know, these types of characters. Um, but once they embrace that and they really leverage the power that they have, that it's amazing what they can do. So I'm, I'm curious on, on your take of that. Um, I think it's a possibility. Um, I don't, I don't believe at all that, um, dyslexia is something where you have to be hindered. Um, and I guess the culture, especially in America, kind of the way it is, is, um, you're a dyslexic person. And for some of the school systems in America, it's great. We have another special ed student and we get more funding that way. So they stick you in the special ed class where they don't really teach you anything. And maybe you get to learn math at like second grade. (laughs) So, Yeah, yeah. But, um, yeah, I just, I don't know it. From what it seems like, like, I know they'll say Steve Jobs was dyslexic, um, Steven Spielberg was dyslexic. Um, a lot of these people tend to be um, more visual. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, like you said, higher IQ eventually or um, yeah, yeah. figure stuff out just from ways where people don't normally look at something. They might look at it a different way and just completely figure it out pretty easily. Yeah. So, but... um. You, you were talking about, like, next stage of evolutionary development, and I was thinking, oh, well, the alphabet could kind of evolve also for that because there was another research paper I was looking at where they created something called dyslexic notation where the whole alphabet is just shapes, and they Ooh. only did the <laughs> letters. Um, but it looked like I thought it looked kind of weird and fantastic at the same time. Cause it looks a lot like you would see on, on an alien control panel in a movie. <laughs> and I, I kind of turned it into a typeface, wrote some stuff out. I was having trouble reading it. I turned it over to my wife and I asked her to read it and she picked it up pretty quickly. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> but, um, I, I'm going there. I put it on GitHub under alpha symbolic if you wanted to take a look at a picture of it. Yeah, we're, we're Googling right now. Hang on. I'll send it over. There you go. And oh. while we're doing that, have you had any, have you thought about doing your font for other languages, doing this type of font for another language? Um, I do want to expand the character set. So I think that would cover it. I've had a couple of, English speaking people ask me, Hey, maybe you should do this for something like Korean or Japanese. And I don't think that's necessary <laughs> just because the way their language is, well, I, one, I don't understand the language. So it would be just completely bizarre for me to go into that. But, um, two, their language, I think pretty much takes care of it very well. Dude, the N on this, uh, the alpha symbolic, is is like an O, and it's confusing me. <laughs> and like, because the M is like two long lines and a little line in the middle, I would think the N would be two, you know, uh, just two lines. Um, yeah, this is kind of cool. Huh. It's cool, though. I mean, it's it's very, it does, it looks like exactly like what you said, that I would see this in an alien uh, dashboard. Very cool. Huh. <sighs> All right. So let's go back to some of the apps. Let's talk about some more of these apps that you used for manipulating fonts. Because I noticed here in, in the notes, you had some good comments on what you thought the pros and cons were on various uh, font apps. Yes. Um, so 
And like people did recommend Fontforge to me because it was free. And at the time, I had a Windows computer. It was a ThinkPad X100E or X120E. Um, it, essentially, it doesn't run any version of Linux very well. So <laughs> you have to try to figure out how to run it on Windows. It doesn't run on Windows. FontForge doesn't run on Windows very well. And so at this time, I'm working two jobs and trying to get um, this done at the same time, and it's just font forges out the window. It's taking too much time. Um, I was doing Font Creator. I started out with Font Creator, and I just stopped using it because it was kind of a little buggy. And this is just a demo version. Um, depending on what you did with it, the automatic font smoothing would mess up your font smoothing. And it would look great on a computer like macOS, Linux, or any other modern operating system that throws out font smoothing instructions and just does it on its own. But Windows relies heavily on font smoothing instructions inside the font, so it looked horrible. What are font smoothing instructions? Um, basically, you have um, this thing called anti-aliasing, where you have curves on the screen, and because the screen is such a low resolution compared to, like, paper or a retina display um, because you have pixels there every curve shows up like lego blocks and in order to prevent that what they do is they'll either fill in the missing spaces with a lighter shade of gray or in the case of microsoft and windows with clear type they'll do something called subpixel rendering where it will fill it in with a color since a, a single color on a pixel is literally a portion of the pixel and it increases the horizontal resolution by three. Mm. So it makes it look like it makes it look generally much sharper. That's makes it look less pixelated, but it also makes it look harsher. So it's kind of a trade off. The biggest downside is if you don't take care of it and tell it where you want it smooth, it looks pretty horrible. <laughs> if you remember what Linux fonts rendering looked like back in the late 90s mm -hmm. that's what it could look like <laughs> <laughs> so what other apps did you try um i tried font lab for a while but i it was too expensive for me to buy um it was kind of buggy they from what it looked like on their change logs it didn't look like they responded to things um very quickly new versions of macOS or whatever would take a while for a patch. Um, that was my impression from the changelog because there was no way I was going to spend that kind of money without like some kind of promise that it was going to be updated reasonably. Um, so what I did do was I set up a fundraiser and raised money for Glyphs app, which is a macOS 10 app but it has an incredibly smooth workflow and you would actually have to take a look at it. But it's basically, it gives you a canvas and you type the letters you want into this canvas. And then you take your cursor and you could draw inside where the letters are that you typed. You could rearrange the letters, you could paste in the document and just work on the typeface as you're playing around with different passages and such. So you're not limited to just one letter at a time like every other application out there. Mm. And it was cheaper as a faster development cycle. And the guy that um, runs it, uh, the guy that um, wrote it, responds very, very, very quickly. <laughs> so I've had like maybe two problems so far. I couldn't find stuff or... Um, I just thought there was maybe a bug with his program or maybe my file was corrupt. And he responded within 10 minutes. Wow. Yeah. So it's a really nice application. Well worth the money. <laughs> and how much you how much do these different apps cost? Um, I think Font Lab was six hundred. Whoa. <laughs> Ouch. That, that is ridiculous. <laughs> that is. Uh, yeah. no, no wonder fonts are so damn expensive. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, let's see here. I think it's, yeah, I can't see it right now. Yeah, it's, uh, 559 to purchase. Wow. Um, 
Font Creator is $70. Um, Font Forge costs nothing, but depending on your situation, blood, sweat, and tears. <laughs> and Glyphs app has two versions, a $50 one that's geared towards making icon um, typefaces, and then one that's $299 that I'm using right now. What is it that makes, why are these so expensive? Or why are some of them so expensive? Um, I have a theory that um, part of the reason Font Lab's expensive is an old, um, I, I guess you would say the old guard kind of thing, where mm. they're an older company, they release software, they have their major versions where you have to pay for upgrades. They have their staff and the whole nine yards. Glyphs app, um, much more nimble as far as a company goes. And it's sent through the app store, so there's much less work to be done there, I guess. But, yeah, that's all I could think of there. Okay. So you settled on the Glyphs app yeah. as your application. What other materials or resources did you use to get started and, and learn more about how to do the typeface? Um, Google's submission requirements for web fonts was incredibly helpful because in it you have like Google's requirements like we want you to do this, that, and the other thing as far as getting things formal. But they also have thing they they have like a checklist of things to do before you send it to them, and it's stuff like. Um, making sure that the letters are done a certain way. Um, it's like basically a to-do list of things you know you're going to forget when you're working on a typeface. <laughs> yeah. So it, it was like, what, that was actually, I think, what I first started with as far as written material because I had talked to someone at Google about adopting this and they said that I would have to make one for them and then they gave me this documentation so I would know what to do. And it was a great starting point because you're reading stuff about kerning. And it's like, oh, I have to work on letter spacing. And then you Google it and you find out more information. Um, Font Lab was a surprisingly useful resource because exploring around reading the help file uh, showed me things that I was supposed to be doing also and to help maintain compatibility and such. What do you mean when you say maintain compatibility? Um, like... If I just, for instance, if I just created a typeface but didn't work on any um, of the font smoothing, it wouldn't work in Windows, but it would work on macOS kind of thing. Mm. So it was, you look through the help file and it, the help file topics pretty much were an indicator of I should be work touching on these subjects as I work on this typeface. Um, a lot of it was just doing it and figuring it out later. <laughs> but um, a couple other resources that are good, Adobe's website has a lot of technical information on typefaces. And then Talentopoly also had like a lot of good information. Um, people kept posting different things there, and I kept saving it to Instapaper so I could read later. And a couple other stuff that I found that I posted there too. Um, but stuff about kerning and the kern type letter game or the um, the kerning game where you have to move the letters and find out the best place for the letters to be to kern it really helped with understanding how kerning worked and what it was supposed to look like. Nice. Well, we need to have you on the uh, podcast more often so you can give some shout-outs to Townopoly. This has been <laughs> pretty awesome. <laughs> Uh, so are there any pitfalls or mistakes you made that you could save somebody else who's getting started right now some time and say, Hey, avoid this, or, you know, this wastes a lot of my time. Um, well, I wasted a lot of time playing around with kerning and stuff without first understanding what it was supposed to do. And I did, I, I messed it up pretty horribly a couple of times. Um, Things to remember, I guess, would be try not to switch um, typeface applications a lot. I switched from Font Creator to Font Lab to Font Forge to Glyphs app, 
And every step along the way, something got corrupted, something went missing, um, metrics were lost, and metrics aren't the most fun thing to do, which I'm working on right now again. So just try to stick with a program once you get one. And FontForge is great if you have the time to mess around with it too. Okay, great. Thanks for talking to us about that. And hopefully somebody listening to this will go and create a, a, a font that is increasing accessibility in other ways for people because you've had a lot of success with your font, right? It's gotten a lot of traction lately. Uh, yeah, surprisingly huge amount of traction lately. <laughs> you want to talk about that for a minute? Some of the places that it, some of the people that are using it or places you've talked to about it? Yeah, well, um, at first there was a school and, oh gosh, I can't remember the name of the school now. But um, there was a school in New York that said they would um, test it for me. And then stuff kind of went silent after that. There were a couple other um, teachers that said they were using it with some success. And then um, there was Instapaper adopted it, and it's a font option now in Instapaper. And after that, things exploded. So um, it went on the BBC, and I got a ton, a ton of people from Britain saying they were using the font. Um, a couple of hospitals, their IT departments rolled it out to every computer so the staff could have a choice on the typeface they want to use. Uh, a couple of schools are adopting it in one form or another. So the response has been pretty incredible, and it just keeps kind of hitting one news outlet after the other recently, so it's been kind of exciting. Uh, I, I've got one last question, and and you don't have to, we don't have to talk about it if you don't want to, um, but uh, cease and desist that you got from... Christian Boer. <laughs> yeah, so um, he sent me the cease and desist. And if you look on my blog, it's um, pretty self-explanatory, my response and then his response back and my silence back at him. Um, but I, I don't think he wants anything to do with me. So <laughs> What's the background here? Because I'm not sure listeners will understand what, it is, what you're talking about. Okay, so the background here is that the university, I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, but I'm just going to say it. The University of Twenty in um, the Netherlands did a study on a typeface. And I don't know if it was that he was on that or like somewhere along the line, they studied his typeface. And I don't know if the study was done in conjunction with the development of his typeface or what. But um, that was the study that was primarily making headlines two years ago, a year and a half ago. And that's where they laid out that, hey, um, if you did bottom-heavy fonts, uh, that's easier for people to read. It prevents them from rotating the fonts. Hey, if you did stuff that was with unique font shapes, that also helps with readability. Um, hey, if you did some obvious things like increasing the spacing between letters and such, that helps with readability. So um, that was basically... I took those principles and I designed the font from scratch using Bitstream Verisans as kind of like the base initially. And really early on, while I still have Bitstream characters in it, and obviously so, um, he sends me this cease and desist letter saying, hey, you're um, directly copying my font. Obviously, you've seen it and obviously you're copying it or something like that. <laughs> So, um, long story short, after I got done panicking, I, <laughs> <laughs> and I remember talking to you back then too about it. Yeah. I, I, I that was my first cease and desist letter. So I was kind of panicking a bit about Did you it. Frame it and put it on the wall. <laughs> you know, I should, I should print it out and open dyslexic and, <laughs> and it is an open dyslexic on my website too. <laughs> But, um, yeah, after freaking out about it a bit, I called a couple of people. They got me some um, lawyers I could talk to. And they all pretty much said the same thing, just tell them to go pound sand. So, yeah. I <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, you know, I have an italic typeface and he doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> I love, I love how, like, type geeky this is right now. <laughs> excellent well thanks for talking to us about this uh 
and anybody listening, please go out, be motivated and inspired by this. And I know a lot of typeface and typography. And when people talk about that, it's almost always about how nice does this font look? You know, what, what are the aesthetic qualities of it? And that's what I mostly hear people talk about, but I really am excited about this, that this is hopefully solving a real problem and making people's lives better, not just more beautiful. And I wish more people would spend time creating typefaces that could create more accessibility for people because it's so important. And with that, let's get into some Talentopoly links. All right. (laughs) We've got five great links for you on this episode. Number one, understanding Postgres performance. It's an interesting article that is talking about caches and hit rates on those caches within your database, within Postgres, but really this stuff can apply to any relational style database and maybe beyond. Uh, Really indexing is what it's focusing on here and understanding index usage, first of all. How does the database from that query that you're telling it to go execute then break that up and what, what potential indexes would it use? And you can do some really cool stuff with explain and analyze in here so that you can see, oh, that's exactly how it's scanning through the database of records. And I can see I have a problem here. I thought it was using a certain index, but it's not. Or, oh, I totally messed creating an index in the first place for this. And then they go on to show that using New Relic as the stats uh, gatherer, it can show you some pretty drastic performance increases if you do your indexes correctly and account for, uh, you really want to aim for an index cache hit rate of 99%, they said. So, yeah, just incredible. But a lot of this is basic to, you know, the people who have done indexing and have had a reason to make a site that can handle any decent amount of traffic but if you've never done it before you haven't had a reason so far to do it there could be some interesting things in here you should check out and make sure you're doing from now on so let's get to uh our second link (laughs) what was that (laughs) i'm I'm upset that this dude doesn't have any screenshots screenshots of base two the sequel light three gui it let's see here i thought he did i thought i had seen this somewhere He's got a section for screenshots. There's no screenshots in it. <laughs> I have seen a screenshot of this, so I I'm wanna... I'm o- I'm opening the application right now. I want to know how I saw it then, but it looked very nice, and this was born out of a need that I had because I'm using SQLite on several projects right now. I've just started using it actually on several projects, and so you know I I came across the conventional wisdom that there is a fairly nice extension for Firefox that can connect to a SQLite database and give you a nice GUI for that. But there's just something icky to having to use an extension inside <laughs> Firefox to do that. And I can't really get past. And I feel the same way about things like Fire FTP and, you know, that yeah. people who just build these things into Firefox and I don't want to do it. And I looked around and, like, surprisingly, it actually did surprise me that there are there was a total absence of good SQLite GUIs out there for Mac or even for Windows. There were some free ones that looked horrible, and I tried one of them <laughs> on the Mac that was just so god-awful. It, it was like this was the person's first attempt at ever making a GUI for the Mac <laughs> ever. <laughs> and I used it for like three weeks until I finally just couldn't take it anymore and uninstalled it. And so Base 2 is pretty nice and it's worth the money if you're going to be dealing with SQLite stuff and you don't you have an aversion like I do to Firefox extensions doing non-browser things. Yep. The the interface is pretty nice. I mean, it's a standard Mac, so it yeah. does look like they followed a lot of the same, you know, design patterns. Yeah. It's it gets the job done. And you know what else I really like about it? I want to know who this guy uses to make his icons. Is he yeah. doing this? I, yeah, I don't know. His icons are really pretty damn solid. Yeah. If you look at his other apps, all of them have killer icons. And the other thing, too, just a special mention here, he's got an app called Filler, which is really nice because you can just fill up your test databases with tons of different data. Just lots, just fill them up with some data so that you, when you go into your web app, you're just mucking around in there. It's not just all empty. So kind of nice. All right. Do you know what Persona is, Brandon? In uh, I do a little bit. 
You want to take number three here? Not really, but I will. <laughs> Run with it, man. Uh, yeah, so Persona is um, a browser ID uh, from Mozilla. It's now rebranded as Persona, and their whole angle is coming up with an authentication uh, method that's easier to implement than OAuth and better than uh, you know logging in with your Facebook, your Twitter, your your Google accounts. Um, that's all I really know about it, if I was going to be honest. <laughs> but it looks pretty cool, and here's the thing. It's, it's, it is really new right now. Um, I think that uh, I would like to see that people start implementing it, but right now, if you have an app and you want to get some PR, the quickest way that you can do that is by implementing uh, Persona and then talking or then trying to uh, send messages to Mozilla and everybody else because right now if your site does support uh, a persona you will get a little pr love and if you can get on mozilla's website that's going to just jack your page rank right up this is the first beta that they're announcing of it it used to be called browser id mm-hmm. and uh, i think i think i said that i think i said that did you you might yeah have. you were Sorry. listening i was trying <laughs> shit i started sleeping when you talk brandon i'm sorry okay. <laughs> but yeah, so it's it's pretty cool. Um, I do the, is it just Mozilla.org/persona, or oh no, you have to go through Talentopoly's link. I apologize. Yeah, I think identity.mozilla.com. I'm not sure. There's the link to the actual blog post in here. Yeah, uh, but it's it's pretty cool. And the the one thing that's nice about it is that you, I th I think you can implement all of it just using uh, front end, uh, yes. so JavaScript. So you don't have to have the server uh, the server calls going back and forth. I'm not sure how they do it, what kind of black magic they're using to make it secure, but uh, it looks it looks pretty cool. Nice, you nailed it. That's that's everything we needed to say about it. Nicely done, sir. Oh, thank you. We can move on now. <laughs> Link and feel free to jump in, Avalardo, if you have anything to add to these. We just kind of go fast and furious through them. Question, Persona. It looks like its main goal is just to um, increase completion rates on websites. Uh, like, yeah. it, or is it like also um, authentication and such? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. So yep. I can just go in here and I can say, you know, instead of instead of creating an account, just like I can, you know, say, oh, I just want to sign in with Facebook. Um, that uh, that their whole it's it, that's basically what they're trying to trying to be able to offer. But you're not necessarily tying it to your Facebook or your Twitter. That this is all it really is is just a login method. So even if somebody, you know, because right now everybody every app that you go and sign in, so yeah, I just want to sign in with Facebook. You know, depending on what access they want, which most likely you don't look at when you approve it, um, is giving you access to your whole damn online life. Uh, so that's kind of, I think, where they're going with it. I could be completely wrong. And I purposely will look for the native sign-up on a page. I don't yeah. want to use my Twitter Absolutely. or my Facebook. But they have done, I mean, there's tons of data out there suggesting that if you do offer those other more convenient ways to sign up, your sign-up conversion rate will skyrocket. Yeah. And it's super easy. You don't have to mess around with anything. And if you don't let them see all your Facebook stuff, then they also don't have a password on file for you. So right. if their database gets dumped. Yep, that's a good point. And also you don't have as you don't have people issuing support requests. Hey, I forgot my password. Yeah. So, but it's not, I like the idea of putting it in my browser. That makes so much sense to me. It seems like the natural place for authentication like that to be taking place, not via Facebook, but via my browser. So, yep. All right. Link number four, ego driven development. This is a hilarious blog post by Steve Shogren, a software developer currently based just outside Philadelphia, as his bio says. And he has come up with a software development anti-pattern that he calls <laughs> ego-driven development. And this is where developers and managers repeatedly act as if established best practices do not apply to them. To the detriment of their organization, <laughs> <laughs> institutional ego is most often, often to blame for this. I, I laughed the entire time going through this. Everything rang true to me, starting with the not-invented-here syndrome. Expressed most commonly in a desire for everything needed to be developed in-house. Need a CMS? Let's make our own from scratch. <laughs> and then he goes on to say, little to no test coverage of domain logic is another uh, dead giveaway of this. Plenty of great developers who do not need to uh, automate a test to remember all the little quirks of their systems. When they're working alone, that's fine. But when you start working in a group of developers, 
this is the type of thing that you need to do as a good citizen of a team, increasing communication and speed for the team. Uh, what were? Did you get a chance to look through this, Brandon? Uh, no, <laughs> too long. Didn't read. What <laughs> no, it, it it was pretty funny. Um, but if you laughed the entire time you were going through it, um, you might have just upped your nerd cred by about fifty points. <laughs> Excellent. That's what I like doing. That every day I try to up it by fifty points. <laughs> uh, no, I, I yeah, I didn't read it. How about Agile Light? I like this one. Everyone pretty much has heard that Agile's a fast development methodology. Uh, but what often happens is that management either does not learn enough about it or they do not like the chaotic nature of true Agile. So they attempt to adopt the best parts. He puts that in quotes. Typically, <laughs> this means splitting work into sprints and having a stand-up while developers all just work off of tickets assigned and estimated by their leads. Often this happens because the person who makes the call on whether or not to implement Agile falsely believes themselves and the team to be, quote, good enough to not need it. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> a low Joel test score. For people that aren't familiar, the Joel test is uh, done by Joel Spolsky over at Fog Creek Software on his very popular blog. He's come up with, uh, I think, 12 uh, items. And if you go to the careers.stackoverflow site, when you're posting a job there, they actually give you the option to fill out the Joel test as well about your company. But it... it asks you things like do you have a do you do QA do you have single button deployment of your code you know basic things that any or any good organization should of course be doing but it's surprising how many of them don't actually do a lot of these things and so he says a team that scores low on the Joel test does so because someone along the way decided that nah we don't need that here we are special and almost certainly they are not I have yet to hear of a team with a legitimate reason for a low Joel test score this oh. is awesome. Yeah. The Joel test? Are you looking yeah. at it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that their job board uses that. Uh, having a higher score on the Joel test that a company gave me, and it was because um, some of the things just didn't apply to the type of development they were doing. Mm, and, of course. <laughs> well, the, it's like they're doing, if you're doing like VB scripts and stuff and you don't use version control or you're doing something like access databases and you're not using version control, a couple of the other ones do fall apart. But then that's just because you're not using version control and you're in trouble. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. All right. Our last link is GitHub collaborative coding training. Uh-oh. I, I did not know about this. GitHub is doing training now as web-based classes, in-person training, and they've got a bunch of awesome resources for all of this. You took a look at this, right, Abelardo? A brief look? Well, I took a look at it, and I looked into it, and that's why I posted it, and a lot of it's free, and it looks pretty fantastic. And I was thinking, since my company kind of doesn't use versioning everywhere, (laughs) (laughs) this would be something that I could um, show them and see if maybe we could like something to get our stuff starting to get versioned. Cause yeah, th- this is, I mean, I haven't taken any of them yet, but all the web-based ones are free and that alone just makes it worth it. I think I'm definitely going to sign up for one of these. I like the, they have office hours, which is really cool, but this GitHub power tools one looks pretty neat. They're going to tell you about several GitHub power tools, including such amazing topics as pull requests, issue tracking, project sites, custom domain names, team and organization access controls, and wikis. Yeah, I mean, a lot of that you pretty much can go through pretty quickly. But I just want to see how they lead this, how they how they teach this. I think that's what I'm most interested in. And, you know, I think more organizations should be doing these types of nicely done, really their webinars, right? That's what the rest of the world calls this some more in the marketing world but if you can do a webinar like this really nicely and get people to sign up for it and teach your stuff well i think that's incredibly powerful yeah and they even have in-person stuff too but it costs more <laughs> yeah i'm wondering how much that costs or how much staff they have because that's something where they may that may end up getting a lot of demand i think there's one that's 110 github foundations and html5 devconf that's just $110, and that looks bad. like an all-day thing. Wow. That at all. Interesting. I wonder if they use a partner system for that, if you can somehow 
get some, you know, sign up, be, do some basic training with them, but it's not your full-time job, but they have people in different geographical areas that they can say, oh, we have somebody close to you that can come and do that one-day thing. Well, let's see. Well, I just tried to sign up for the developer conference. It's done through Eventbrite. And they have, like, several different ticketing options, I guess. They're all different prices. Hmm. Very nice. Well done, GitHub, as usual. Well, thanks for joining us on this episode of the podcast, Abelardo. Thank you for having me. And Brandon, as always, it was a pleasure. Meh. <laughs> and if you like what you heard, check us out on iTunes and leave us a glowing review. We really appreciate it. And until next time, keep hacking. <laughs>